Betty Lamar was often called the most beautiful woman in the world in the 1940s and 50s, inspiring many to imitate her iconic looks and even inspiring the artists who created Snow White and Catwoman. What most people don't know is that she played an important role outside the movies for the part, uh, her part as a, an inventor during World War II of a, a radio guidance system for Allied torpedoes that has become the basis of Wi-Fi, GPS, and Bluetooth. In a new film called Bombshell, the Hedy Lamarr story, Emmy Award-winning director Alexandra Dean tells her story through interviews with Hedy's children and close friends. It opens this Friday at the IFC Center in Greenwich Village, and I'm very pleased it has brought Alexandra Dean to our show. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. When did you first realize there was more to Hedy Lamarr's life story than, than all of her years as a, a beautiful movie star? It was about three years ago now, and I was starting this new company called Reframed Pictures. And uh, we wanted to reframe the conversation around some really crucial topics. And one of them was people who get erased out of history. And we were looking for you know people to resurrect um, who we thought had been unfairly overlooked. And I had this great uh, producer at the time working with me, Catherine Drew, who knew of this story, Hetty's Folly, that had just come out by the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Rhodes. And I read the book, and it resonated on all these different levels, because I'd been looking at inventors for Bloomberg Television and Business Week magazine for two years. And then there was a play, wasn't there? There was a wonderful play by Elise Singer hmm. uh, called Frequency Hopping, and she actually worked with us on the film. Now, did you... Uh have any difficulty finding the people you talked to, her children, for example? Yes. Wasn't one of her children, James, her adopted son, estranged? Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, I did have difficulty talking to her children because they were really understandably jumpy about talking to me about their mother's story. You have to understand that Hedy Lamarr had become this complete recluse at the end of her life because she felt completely maligned by the press. And then there was... Uh, I guess, getting in touch with journalist Fleming Meeks. Uh, can you tell us that story? Yes. So having you know spent about six months getting Hetty's children on board and really talking to everybody, we realized there were no records of her talking on tape, uh, home video, no scraps of evidence that she had ever responded to the question, did she do this invention? And uh, was she sure she didn't steal it from her munitions manufacturer husband? And so uh, we were really curious, what would Hetty have said about all of this? And we really wanted to meet her in a private space, not in her films, but through her voice. And so we went looking uh, and used, I, I really fell back on my skills as a journalist for many years, an investigative journalist. And I really made a list of everybody who could ever have talked to her on the record, any inventor, any um, child or you know family member friend or journalist and we had about 70 people on this list and we went down it with great enthusiasm asking everybody if they had a scrap of information and struck out and it was devastating and then you know I, I was waking up in the middle of the night thinking we've got to try again we've got to try again and so we did we went back down the list and uh, Libby Kurtz an amazing person in my uh, office said you know you had the wrong email for Fleming Meeks hmm. He's now at Forbes magazine, and she got in contact with him. He called me. I picked up the phone, and he said, I've been waiting 25 years for you to call me. He'd been sitting on these tapes, and what an extraordinary thing How that was. How many hours of tape did he have? It was four tapes. I would say each one ranged between half an hour and 45 mm -hmm. minutes. And she talked about her life. 
she talked about her life. And it was this incredible thing because he'd only wanted seven quotes for a little Forbes magazine article, and she just kept going on. How did uh, a an Austrian Jewish girl named Eva Maria Kiesler become Hedy Lamar? Hedy comes out of Hedwig, mm-hmm. but uh, it was manufactured. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, she was. She was this Austrian Jewish girl from this upper middle class family, a very proper, um, who learned concert piano as a child. But she had this burning desire to be an actress from the time she was young, and when she was, you know. In the process of fleeing Austria because she was Jewish during the Second World War, she was picked up by Louis B. Mayer and made into Hedy Lamarr on the crossing from Europe to America. But she'd already appeared in German and Austrian films and and, uh, theatrical productions, and she appeared in Gustav Machadi's Czech film, Ecstasy. Yes. Uh, that, That film probably would have today would have ruined the career of an aspiring young actress. Did it help her career? You know, there's a lot of ways you can look at it, but it was her Kim Kardashian moment, I like to say. If you want to bring it to today, that's what it was. It bought her, you know, exploding onto the public consciousness because this was a film in which you see a woman in the throes of orgasm for the first time on screen, and it was 1933. And she also runs through the woods in full frontal nudity. Full frontal. I mean, this was a brave woman. She broke she broke the mold everywhere she went. And this is her as a teenager. She's 16, 17 years old when they're filming this film. She boldly does this. But, you know, she comes from a world we've forgotten, which was very, very free in that way. Uh, Vienna, between the wars. Uh, there are lots of incredible nude photographs of women at that time that were really considered high art and were hung in the opera house. But she, that film was banned in several countries. It was banned, and, it was, and Hitler led the charge. But what we've forgotten is he didn't lead the charge because it was nudity or orgasm. It was because because the lead actress was Jewish. Now, you mentioned her connection to Louis B. Mayer. How did she meet him? She the met the mayor of, of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer oh, Metro fame. Gold- yes, right. The, the most powerful man in Hollywood and perhaps the world, you could argue, at that time. Um, Louis B. Mayer met Hedy Lamarr probably in London. We don't know for sure, but in, in her, the tape, she says it was while she was fleeing Austria. She stopped in London and found shelter with some of her mother's friends, met an agent there and convinced him, you know, I really want to meet Louis B. Mayer. I want to make a pitch to him. I think I could be a Hollywood actress. She knew she wanted to make this pitch. And Mayer, you know, in the timeless fashion of uh, Hollywood producers that we're still talking about today, um, did not treat her very well upon their first meeting. He made her an offer that she turned down. Yeah, he, he, ga- he gave her a paltry sum of money. He actually patted her on the behind, and he said, you know, he chastised her for ecstasy. she didn't come out of the shower naked. Well, we don't know. <laughs> but yeah, No, probably not. Uh, but he definitely did, you know, touch her inappropriately. And he said, you know, you can't get away with running around naked in America. That would be a scandal. You better behave yourself if you're going to come to Hollywood. And she said, you know, I don't care for your offer or your tone and walked out. And then why did he come up with a better offer? He was astonished at this woman. I mean, she was a Jew fleeing from Austria. She should have been on her knees, but she wasn't. She was standing up strong and saying, I'm not, I'm worth more than that. And so she, she had to pursue him. She then got on the ship that he was getting on to go back to Hollywood in disguise as a, as a, um, a caregiver for a child that was getting on the ship, and she convinced him on the crossing to make her a movie star. Well, she couldn't have disguised her beauty. She was extraordinarily <laughs> beautiful. She was, and I'm sure people knew. And was she a her. victim? Do you think of her beauty? Because mm. people very much responded her 
to her very like that rather than somebody who might have had a brain? A victim is a strong word, and I, I struggle with it in relationship to Hedy Lamar because I think it was a double-edged sword for her. It gave her enormous power from the time she was a small child, intoxicating power. And at the same time, it definitely put her into this straitjacket that she never really escaped from. But she was an amazing woman because she tried to turn that power in her favor and make it something she could wield from, from the beginning of her life. And it's that struggle that I think makes her feel so contemporary. I'm speaking with Alexandra Dean, whose latest film is Bombshell, The Hedy Lamar Story. It opens this Friday at the IFC Center. Um, she had to learn English, and she spoke English rather well in the movies. Yeah, that was a miracle, because she wouldn't go to English classes. She went to the movies, and she mimicked the actresses she loved. Marlene Dietrich is one of her favorites. Um, and she just watched everything she did and really mimicked the American actresses as well, trying to get an accent right. But she had to have a, a speech coach on set, and she says during Algiers she had not a clue what she was saying. She was just simply saying lines that she'd been told to yeah. say. Yeah. Well, but she became a star pretty quickly, didn't she, simply because uh, of how gorgeous she was? Yeah. I mean, I heard stories from many people that when she first appeared in Algiers— the American population wasn't used to seeing her. Many of them hadn't seen ecstasy. They just heard about it. And this extraordinary face appears through this crowd in a Moroccan kasbah. And the entire audience apparently gasped. And many people said to me, we, I, they never heard before or since a reaction like that in a movie audience. Was she already a star when she began dabbling in inventing no, I think she started as a small child with her father. So she had had she studied science at school in Austria? No. Vienna? You know, she had a high school uh, education. She'd definitely done chemistry classes and things like that. She said she was quite good at chemistry. But she left school at 15, which was not unusual in that age, especially for women. And she pursued... Uh, you know, an interest in acting. But that interest really swept her up and took, carried her away for a while because it gave her an enormous power. What was the first thing she tinkered with? Uh, well, what I love is, it's not in the film, but the first thing she tinkered with is apparently a light bulb. She smashed it to see if she could put it back together again, which I love about her. But she took her uh, childhood music box apart and put it back together again. And I, you know, I think she would, must have had a real obsession with radios because we see them all over her invention notebooks. And then she, one of the people she met who was played an important role in her life was Howard Hughes. Uh, she even dated him briefly. Now, she was married six times, and yes. Hughes was married a lot of times, yes. but they never married. No, and he did propose to her. I have a letter that she wrote to her mother with evidence that he proposed. And she, Hetty recognized that they were very similar people. They would both end up recluses. They both had enormous fame in 1938. They hit the public consciousness at the same moment. And they had a lot of power at that time and would prefer, instead of going to glamorous parties, to, to invent on their own. So they, they should have been soulmates. She, he should have been finally the person that, that was her match. But they didn't have a good relationship uh, in the bedroom. And I think he wasn't her match in that he still wanted to control her. And in her letters to her mother, she says, look, it felt like another Fritz Mandel. He was too powerful and he wanted me to be an object. Did she, he, they both had double careers. Yeah. Uh, he made movies yeah. uh, was she did she try to help him with his problems with aircraft 
Well, she says she did. And this is the astonishing thing. You know, when I first interviewed Hetty's son, Anthony, I said, do you remember her talking about this invention, this frequency hopping? And he said, you know, as a matter of fact, I remember her talking about it when I was seven years old, going up in the attic and finding this box and showing me it. But he always said in the same breath, she also said she invented swept wings for airplanes, which is that that figure where the, the wing is actually sort of tucked back like a bird diving out of the air. And I thought, that sounds very unlikely. But when we found the tapes, sure enough, Hetty immediately starts talking about how she told Howard Hughes about swept wings for airplanes. How did she come to collaborate with George Antile on inventing? George Antile is another incredible story because he's a famous composer. You know, he deserves his own documentary. And it's he's a very seductive character, actually. And I had to keep working to make sure he didn't take over her narrative. Um, he was a, an eager Stravinsky of the of America. That's how he, he saw himself. He wanted to compete with Stravinsky. He wanted Stravinsky to be his mentor. And he was very avant-garde. And he, you might have heard of one of his most famous works, which is called The Ballet Mechanique. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's this cacophonous, mad, industrial piece of music that really got him a lot of attention. And really, that was his metier. He wasn't an inventor. He was a musician. But uh, did she come up with the idea of the frequency hopping? Yes. So this was a big question when I started doing the film. But in all of George's correspondence, even private correspondence, even his wife's correspondence, there's constant reference to Hedy Lamarr as a genius who came up with the idea of frequency hopping. And then George helped bring it into a mechanical reality. And this frequency hopping was important because of uh, torpedoes could be deterred? Right. It was this It was a secret communication system. It was a way of having a signal that could transmit from a ship to a torpedo and could not be hacked. If that signal kept jumping, you couldn't block it. But then the Navy rejected the invention. The Navy didn't even understand it back then. That's the astonishing thing. They really thought it was going to be too big and bulky to put in a torpedo, and it was really only the size of the face of a wristwatch. Did she have a patent for it? She did have a patent. And the Navy did keep the invention and put it into their files and eventually would pull it out and use it in some pretty important stuff. And give her credit? No. (laughs) How was frequency hopping uh, the basis of Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and all the other things that it's being credited with? You know, that's something that I didn't believe at first, and I I, I still find it astonishing. But we can draw a straight line between the frequency hopping that, that Hetty created with George to a lot of the fundamentals for the way that we communicate securely on our GPS, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth. And that's because it went via secure military communications. And if you think of the first um, drones that the military deployed over Vietnam, they had frequency hopping in them. Uh, The ships that were deployed during the Cuban Missile Crisis because they wanted a secure way to communicate. And that eventually migrated into everything we use today. A man named Robert Price claimed that he had come up with the idea. Well, he claimed that Hetty was a spy. He was a historian of secret communications. And he he claimed that she'd stolen the idea from her munitions husband. And uh, and he also did, he claimed that other people, himself included, had developed it independently of her. But it was, you know, wanting his cake and eating it too, saying she stole the idea, I think was him hedging, saying we might have, we might have actually based our concept on that. We have very little time left, but she got involved with, she created her own production company because she just felt that her movie career wasn't going to last very long? Yeah. When she was in her 30s, she felt she was being sidelined. She was in this sort of power struggle with Louis B. Mayer. And she decided, you know what? I'm going to stand up on my own two feet and start my own production company. And the only other woman that tried that 
actually the only other actor, male or female, was Betty Davis. And how well did she do as a producer? She did better than Betty, which is saying something. I mean, she she did Strange Woman, which Janine Basinger, uh, the great film historian, still teaches in her class as exemplary of of the time. Uh And she also, uh, at a certain point, suddenly withdrew from public life. Yes, she becomes a recluse at the end of her life. She feels misunderstood, and she is terribly misunderstood. You'll see if you see the film. And she withdraws, which is incredibly sad because she was going to get some really important recognition for her mind. How old was she when she died? She was 86. And she'd been in some pretty incredible movies, but forgotten pretty much at that time? Pretty much forgotten. In the movie career, she even herself said was not the important part of her life. Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story, opens at the IFC Center at 323 6th Avenue this coming Friday. And Alexandra Dean and her producer, Adam Hagiag? Hajaj. Hajaj Mm -hmm. will be holding Q&As at the 5.45 p.m. and 7.55 p.m. shows on the 24th and the 25th. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. 